Aren't you thankful that he is alive? He is the risen Savior who reigns. But imagine being there that Friday. As one of the disciples, you had seen Christ. He had fed the 5,000. He had stood in a boat and calmed the wind and the waves by command. He cast out demons, even a legion of them. Healed numbers of people and then raised Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb four days to life again. And now you're there. He's gone through a mockery of a trial. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. And he's hanging on a cross, dying. And you're watching it. You thought he was the Christ. You thought he was the Messiah. You'd given everything up to follow him, and he's dying. And though you believed in resurrection at the end of the age, no one believed in resurrection in the middle of the age. No one even thought that was possible. And you watch him die, and you scatter. In fact, Sunday morning comes, and it's the third day. You're so not expecting resurrection that you're with your buddies. You're hiding in a room that's locked for fear of the Jews. That's at least by that night. And the women are going to the tomb. Because he had died late Friday, they didn't have the opportunity to finish preparing his body for burial. So they're coming to do so. They did not expect resurrection. None of them did. When people today talk about the fact that they think the people 2,000 years ago were more into the mystic, that is not true. They did not expect resurrection. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to read 21 verses. John chapter 20. I'll stutter step through the text. They're filled with despair. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been rolled away, had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. Just pause there for a moment. The angel has already appeared to Mary and those that came to them. We find that in the Gospel of Mark as you're reading through the account. We know that Mary had been there with others. You can see that in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So when people say, well, these accounts, you know, the only two miracles in all four Gospels are both the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection. They're the only two miracles that are in all four Gospels. Feeding of the 5,000, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so people say these accounts don't align. They do. John has Mary running after she's been to the tomb, but she was there with others. She even says that we were there. And Mary's now run to Peter and to John. Now in the Gospel of Mark, you find that when they left, it says they left after the angel talked to them, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone. Well, the angel had just said to tell people that Jesus was alive. They were saying nothing about the resurrection. They were saying nothing about what the angel had said. But they were concerned that his body was gone. And so Mary gets there. She gets to Peter and to John. 
John refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. He does that throughout his gospel. That's not to say he believed he was more loved than others. It just says that he believed he was loved by Jesus. I mean, he's writing this years later, probably exiled on the island of Patmos, dying. And as he writes his gospel, he's writing, I was the one Jesus loved. And he's not saying he was loved more than the other disciples or more than other people. But isn't that a great way to refer to yourself? You're the one whom Jesus has loved. That's how John thought of himself. That was his identity. I'm the one Jesus loved. Is that not a great way to think of yourself? I'm the one Jesus loved. It's not arrogant. It's not some sense of superiority. He's commenting on his status in Christ. I'm loved by Jesus. I'm loved by him. So Mary gets to Peter and she gets to John and she's so upset. She's like, they've taken his body. We don't know where. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, they start for the tomb. Both are running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter along behind, came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. That cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb, also, uh, the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. But they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. In our family devotional time, I often start, you know, when we get through the Bible at the beginning of the Bible and work my way through to the end. At one time, our kids wanted to read the Bible verse by verse through the whole Bible. And partway through that, they realized it was going to take a long time, so I then stopped doing that, and we went to kind of major stories through Scripture. And occasionally, I'll say to the kids, do you have a favorite Bible story you want Dad to read? Right? Is there something you want me to read? For our daughter, Abby, it's usually dark. It's like death of the firstborn from Egypt and God's freedom and the destruction of all of the Egyptians. <laughs> or it's the story of Solomon and the two babies that are, or the, sorry, the two women who come to him with the one baby where he says, cut the child in half. She loves that. But for my son, Ethan, it's this encounter right here. He's like, I love. He says, I love that John writes out, Peter and I ran to the tomb and I got there first. <laughs> Ethan's like, I just love that, that John wrote that in. This is one of the reasons you know the Bible is true. Because John wrote he got there first. Now that might surprise you that I would say that. But in ancient literature, when people were making things up, when they were writing fiction, if you read any ancient literature, they're limited on any details. Ancient literature did not carry with it details that we find today when someone writes a longer book, when it's Lewis or Tolkien or Rowling or someone, whoever you want to name, and, and they write these books, Dickens, right? This is only a phenomena of the last 300 years or so where you find the level of detail in story. And so one of the reasons you know Scripture is true is that these gospel writers put in all kinds of detail that no one else would put in in those days. They just wouldn't put them in. 
because they didn't have anything to do with the story. The story is that Jesus is alive. Why does John beating Peter to the tomb have to do with anything? It doesn't. John's just writing what he remembers. Peter and I left, and oh yeah, I beat him there. Because it's true. Because it's true. John looks in, Simon Peter, right? The one who's always first, he just jumps in. He's right into the tomb. And they see the grave closed there. Because Jesus had just come out of them. They see the cloth that's there that was around his head. It's separate. It's there. And it's in its place. The idea is that it's folded there. And then it says that he saw and believed. Now note, it also says in verse 9, they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what they believe likely in this moment is that his body is gone. They still don't yet believe in resurrection. I think that second comment that John's writing there is saying, we didn't get that Jesus had to rise to life again. We didn't understand this yet. So the idea of belief is he believes, well, the body's gone. He believes Mary. The body's not there. How do I know that's likely the case? Well, look at the next verse. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So it's not like they're saying, hey, Mary, it's okay, he's alive. She's crying. As she weeps, she bends over to look into the tomb, and she sees two angels in white. They're seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. And that's why I think John and Peter didn't think he'd risen to life again. They'd have told her, Mary, he's alive. No, they just didn't know where the body was. They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He calls her name. She turned to him. She cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. He calls her by name. You see, when you read through the accounts of the resurrection, you see Jesus is in the business of restoring relationship. Mary, it's me. What does he say to the women earlier that morning? Go to the disciples, tell them they'll meet me in Galilee. Oh, and make sure you tell Peter. He mentions Peter by name. Because he you knows Peter feels like the last person, if the Lord's alive, he'll want to see is me. I denied him three times. But Jesus is into restoring relationship. Is that not great news? And so he says, make sure Peter knows. Mary, it's me. He'll appear to Thomas, who wasn't in the locked room, who says, unless, unless I can put my hands, unless my fingers into his side and into his nail marks, unless I can see them, I won't believe. But then he says something interesting to Mary. He says, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. What's going on here? I mean, he said to the criminal on the cross, today I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. 
We know some would say Jesus descended into hell. They get that out of Peter. I believe if he descended into hell, he only descended to declare his victory. I believe when he cried out, it is finished, that he had taken the full wrath of the Father upon himself on the cross. He did not need to be punished any further for our sin. He did not descend into hell for punishment. If he descended into hell, it was to declare his victory. He says to the criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. So what's going on here? Has he not ascended to the Father? Well, I think he had, but not yet after his resurrection appearances. I think what he's saying to Mary is, Mary, you don't have to cling to me. I mean, she's probably clinging to him. I mean, could you imagine your friend has just been resurrected? The one you thought you lost, you're grieving at the tomb, and then you think his body's stolen. You think someone's desecrating it. This person that you cared for, this person that you'd put all of your hope in, and now he's standing in front of you, and she's just giving him that great big bear hug. Ah! Jesus! And he's saying, you don't need to cling to me. You don't need to cling to me. And when he's saying he hasn't yet ascended to the Father, I believe what he's saying is that at his ascension, right, in now 48 days, when he ascends to the Father, he's going to send his Spirit, and his Spirit is going to be in you, and his Spirit is never going to leave or forsake you. He will be with you always to the very end of the day. He's saying to Mary, you're not going to lose me again. Mary, you're not going to lose me again. You don't need to cling to me like this. I'm going to ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. You don't need to cling to me like this. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Is that not great news? It's true for every believer. So Mary Magdalene, she went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. So it's now the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together. The doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples are overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Mary now becomes this witness. When she first encountered the angel early in the morning with the other women at the tomb, she shows up to Peter and John and says, his body's gone. And they go running to the tomb. Now she's met the risen Savior. He's restored relationship with her. He's called her by name, Mary. And she runs and she tells the disciples, I've seen the Lord. This is a different news account than what happened earlier in the day. His body's gone. I've seen the Lord. I've met with the Lord. I've seen the Lord. But they're still hiding. They're in a room. The doors are locked. They're afraid that they're next. They're afraid that the Jewish leaders are going to want to take them out one by one. And they're terrified. They still don't believe in resurrection. I mean, John's there. Peter's there. That's why I believe what I said earlier when John comments about he says he believed. They believe that they're talking about belief in the fact that the body was gone because they said, you know, we didn't understand what the scripture was saying about resurrection. We didn't get it. And now in this moment, Jesus just appears. The doors are locked. Why is that comment there? 
Because Jesus didn't just enter through the door, he just walked in. So he could eat fish and walk through walls. Our resurrected bodies are going to be awesome. And he says to them, peace be with you. Shalom. A total flourishing in every dimension. Peace be yours. I'm alive. Peace be yours. Death couldn't hold me. Peace be yours. Sin has been defeated. Peace be yours. Satan has been beaten. Peace be yours. And their disciples are overjoyed. They've seen the Lord. And then what does he say? As the Father has sent me, so I send you. All through the Gospel of John, about 40 times, Jesus says he was sent, he was sent, he was sent, he was sent. It's one of the themes of John. You can see it over and over in the Gospel. He was sent, he was sent, he was sent. And now he says for the first time, as the Father sent me, now I send you. As the Father sent me, now I'm sending you out. The rulers thought they could kill Jesus. The enemy, Satan, thought he could defeat him. And the disciples were so confused. In fact, they're still confused. Even at the ascension, what do they say? Jesus, are you going to restore Israel at this time? They're still thinking in terms of a Christ and Messiah who's political and geographic for Israel and for that area. But I imagine at some point, as they're seeing his resurrected body, things he said are coming to life for them. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. They killed him for blasphemy. He makes this, uh, these audacious claims, and all of a sudden, they begin to realize that Jesus came to defeat more than the Roman Empire. That the Christ was to do way more than just that. And see, the resurrection, it changes everything because we have a greater enemy than Rome. So why does the resurrection make sense? I just have four things really quickly. Why does the resurrection make sense? I shared these last year at your 50th anniversary. You may remember them. I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but not entirely. It's the resurrection. Number one, no one expected it. No one expected it. I mean, the disciples are hiding. The women are coming to finish embalming his body. They're shocked when they see him. At first, Mary doesn't even recognize him until he calls out her name. The men on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. Everyone is, they're just assuming he's dead. No one in any way is anticipating resurrection. And yet it's what Jesus did. He was risen to life again. Number two, the women are key witnesses. The women are key witnesses. In those days, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. If you're going to write a myth, if you're going to create a religion and hope that people follow it, as gospel writers, you would never use women as your key witnesses. Never. Because they weren't seen as reliable. Why does God use women as his key witnesses? Number one, it shows how much he values women. Number two, because it's the way it happened. They're just telling you what happened. This is what occurred. This is why you know they're just sharing what happened. They're not just making it up. Three, a body couldn't be produced. A body couldn't be produced. Listen, 
on the day of Pentecost, which is only 50 days after this, on the day of Pentecost, if they wanted to stop the Christian movement, they had their chance. If the Romans, the Roman authority or the Jewish leaders had the body of Jesus, when 3,000 people are believing, all they had to do was take his body out. Oh, it would have been deteriorating and decaying, but it would have been recognizable and said, Lo, here he is. Here's your dead savior. Here he is. Here's your dead savior. But no one could produce a body because the father had raised him to life again. A body couldn't be produced because he's alive. Number four, a great following ensued. A great following ensued. History is unexplainable without the resurrection. In fact, we form our dating of history at the birth of Jesus Christ. B.C. and A.D., oh, we've reframed the words now. But history revolves around the significance of his birth. And he is a movement like no other. Do you know that in 1970, there were 271 million believers in Latin America. In 2021, there were 617 million. In 1970, there were 96 million believers in Asia. In 2021, there were 383 million. In 1970, there were 140 million believers in Africa. In 2021, there were 685 million. And people come to us and they say, well, this is a Western religion. Did they not know anything about the Bible? This started in the Middle East. Began to migrate to other parts of the world at that time. And you can study all kinds of world religions. There's nothing like Christianity. Other world religions move typically by migration patterns. Typically through migration, world religions will move. So there's 1.9 million Muslims living in Canada right now. The conversion of others to the Muslim faith is incredibly low. But that is not true with Christianity. With Christianity, God has moved from country to country and continent to continent around the world, saving people. In fact, when you study it, there are more believers in the Southern Hemisphere right now than they would say has ever existed before if you add up all the believers in the ages past of human history. Why? Because our God is alive and he's saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. And that can only happen when your Savior defeated sin and Satan and death and is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who loves to save the world. That's what's going on. And he is a great savior. You are not a fool for believing that Jesus is alive. He indeed is alive. Tim Keller says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so this morning, we encounter resurrection. It's personal. Mary. Peter. The disciples. It's personal. It's gentle. Did you see that? Peace be with you. There was no rebuke. 
you guys didn't get it? Like all that time you were with me, you didn't understand everything I was saying? There was no rebuke? It's gentle. And it's transformational. As the Father sent me, now I send you. As I came as a witness to the Father, about the Father, now I send you as a witness of the resurrection and what the Father has done through me. So why does the resurrection matter? Well, Christ is vindicated. Christ is vindicated. He is the righteous one. You see, it's not just crucial that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. It's also crucial that Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Had Jesus sinned, he could not have been our perfect sacrifice. Had Jesus sinned, he could not have offered himself for us. But because Jesus never sinned, his righteous life was enough so that he could take our place on the cross, so that he could be our substitute. He could be the second Adam. It's not only that he needed to die, it's that he could not sin. And his righteous life is just as critical as his death on the cross, and he has been vindicated. Secondly, sin could not accuse him. Satan could not defeat him. And death could not own him. He couldn't die. I mean, he gave his life up on the cross, but he couldn't be held in the grave. The power of the Father raises him to life again. And now he calls us to be his witness. I told story in the last number of months, the last couple of months that I've preached through these encounters of different people that I have seen come to faith in Christ. I told you of Tune, who was raised in the Karen tradition, who when his friend committed suicide, went off the rails into a life of drug and abuse and like all, all addiction, all of that mess. Of his friend Wally. Wally, who was going to end his life the day God saved him, and he showed up at the church when I was preaching. And I was out with Wally this week and talking to Tune recently, and the, those young men are now strategizing. Wally was meeting with me to say, Dwayne, I want all of my brother and sister, all of my Karen, like brother and sister Karen, not just immediate family, to come to faith in Christ. I want to create opportunities where they can come and hear the gospel. And Tooney's like, I'm in. And his brother Samson, who came to faith in Christ, this is like, I'm in. And the three of them are talking about how to strategize to reach the 400 Karen in Hamilton. It's probably 150. 40 or so that know the Lord. But then they're like, and after God begins to save those in Hamilton, we want to know how God will save the crowd across Canada because there's 5,000 across Canada. Are you sent like that? As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Are you sent like that? Do you feel the burden for the people around you that don't know Christ? Are you strategizing for colleagues at work and neighbors around you and people? Are you praying for them? Are you thinking about how you can introduce them and invite them into a conversation about the gospel and praying for God to open doors and maybe even bring them over this next few weeks as I'll preach through Advent the next few Sundays. And we'll talk about encountering hope and joy and peace and love at Advent. We'll look through four narrative stories in the gospel. Or maybe it's another opportunity that the church has, or maybe it's into your home, into a living room study, and you're just going to ask them to take a look at the birth announcements of Jesus with you. But he is indeed alive. And lastly, why the resurrection matters. He is our ruling advocate. He is the ascended king. Anybody here ever sin? You don't have to raise your hands. I know you do. If you don't think you do, you've got a lot of problems. I sin. And I have a ruling advocate. What does that mean? 
that Jesus Christ, who defeated sin and Satan and death, who was declared as innocent, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's ruling in the courtroom of heaven. And anytime anyone brings any accusation of a sin that I have committed his way, what does he declare? That I'm innocent. How is that possible? Because he paid the price for my sin. Is that not great news? When someone comes to him and says, you see what Dwayne did? My ruling advocate declares in glory that that sin was covered and paid for by his blood. I took Jewel and Ivy a couple of years ago. They were like 12 on the train to Toronto. We're going to go on the train to Toronto. We're going to hang out in downtown Toronto. And when you're 12, it's free to train. It was a fantastic day, right? So I bought a ticket, right? They get to ride for free. We're going there. And occasionally people come around and check your tickets. And, and they're rule followers. Like Jewel and Ivy like to follow the rules. I won't say which one of us they get that from, but they're rule followers. And so, and so as we're going there, they're nervous that what if someone comes to check the ticket? Because I only had to buy one. I have to buy tickets. And I'm like, this ticket covers you. This ticket declares that a price has been paid. Amy and I were walking out of Walmart one day. This is a few years ago. And you know how you walk out and the bells and sirens go off. You know, woo! Lights are glowing. You know, you're a little embarrassed, right? And I went to my wallet to pull out the receipt and the guard's running over. He's like, oh, you can keep going. I'm like, what? He's like, anyone who stops to pull out a receipt is not stealing from us. I'm like, oh. Anyone who stops to pull out, he said, he said, he said, the people that are stealing from us, they run. That's why I started to run, he said. Um, but anyone who stops to pull out a receipt, right, that this receipt declared that everything I had, I had purchased. The blood of Jesus Christ is our receipt. It's our ticket. And it declares that he has purchased you by his blood. It declares that his blood was spent on your behalf and that he took your sin upon himself so that he could grant you his innocence, his righteousness, so that you could be declared innocent. That's why scripture can say there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Is that not great news? It's not an excuse to sin. Romans tells us that. The Apostle Paul says that. It's in no way an excuse to sin. But praise be the name of our God that though my sin and the debt, which was so large, could never be paid by me, a Savior came, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, God the Son, cloaking his deity with humanity, lived among us at the end of his life, giving his life up for us. He did so, so that my debt could be paid in full. And on the third day, the power of the Father raised him to life again. Sin could not bring any accusation against him. Satan, who thought he'd won, could not defeat him. And death could not hold him down. And he's alive now and forevermore. And one day he's coming back. One day he's going to return. And I know I said this earlier in the series. But on that day, he's going to declare you innocent in full. On that day, he's going to grant you resurrected body. I can't wait. I hope there's a gym in heaven where I can show the guys in heaven 
right, that I really can work out. Again, this week, some guy came up to me. He looked like the Hulk, and he's like, hey, man, I got no one here. Can you spot me? I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? Like, he's like, it's only 400 pounds. Okay, again, to the point. Like, if you, he said, no, 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 I just need, you know, just, okay, I'll watch it, but if it goes down, it's not on me, man. Like, like, I just need you to know this is 400 pounds, and, and I went over and spotted him. I'm looking, there's a couple of other guys, I'm like, they're, these are much better, they're much better suited for this man. And one day, I'll be in glory, and be like, 400 pounds, nothing. It's got nothing on me, right? We're going to be in a place where there is no sin, and there is no pain, and there is no disease, and there is no death. And we're going to be in a place where God's going to take the best commodity we know on earth by which we still measure wealth, gold. And he says, it's going to be the asphalt. And it's only going to get better from there. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He's the resurrected one. You have not lost your mind by believing in him. You found it. The God of glory has granted it to you. He is our ruling advocate. Jesus, God the Son. Would you pray with me? We're so thankful, Jesus, that you indeed are alive, and we're thankful that your blood is enough to cover our sin completely and entirely. We're thankful that sin could bring no accusation against you, that Satan could not defeat you, and that death could not hold you down. And for that, we simply say, praise your name. We thank you that you have so covered us by your blood that you declare us innocent. And we thank you that you will one day grant us resurrected bodies while you are restoring all of the universe, new heaven and new earth, where we will enjoy you as the centerpiece of glory forever and ever. We look forward to that day, that day of full resurrection. And Jesus, between now and then, would you remind us that we are sent ones here to tell this world what you have done for us and what you have done for them. We pray over this Christmas season that you would open doors into the lives of people around us who don't know you to declare that Jesus, our Savior, our King, is alive. And we pray this in the name of Christ the Savior. Amen. I recognize that this is traditionally said at Easter, but Christ is risen. Amen. Hear this from the book of Hebrews. Day after day, every priest would stand and perform their religious duty. Again and again, they would offer the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, that's Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who he is making holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write it on their minds. And then he adds, their sin, your sin. And their lawless acts, your lawless acts, I will remember no more. For where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer needed. Because Jesus is the sacrifice. Amen?
Have a great day in the Lord.